Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio the whole chapter of John 9, verses 1 through 41. Jesus heals a man born blind. Our context is probably still at the Feast of Tabernacles where he said he was the light of the world and where he said rivers of living water will flow from your being if you believe in me, where he's had his run-in with the Pharisees and he called them and he said that their father was the devil. Now it might not be, that might not be the immediate context. Some say that this incident of healing the man born blind happened later, a couple of months later, the Feast of Dedication, rather than in the fall for the last Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus went to. We know he's got about six more months to go approximately before he's crucified. So that's our context. We'll start in verses, verse 1 and go through verse 3 of John 9. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now, this healing of a blind man brings to light an interesting fact. Jesus performed miracles on blind people more than any other miracle he did. And in fact, healing blind people is considered to be a bodaciously impressive miracle because that's a hard thing to heal. It's not something that just happens naturally. And in fact, giving sight to the blind was a sign of the Messiah. Here's some scripture cited by the NIV Study Bible, Isaiah 29:18. On that day, the deaf will hear the words of a document, and out of deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The eyes of the blind will be opened. Isaiah 42, 7. In order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. And these are all messianic. Scriptures which the Jews knew, referring to the Messiah, and that's why Jesus did these healing miracles of sight, so that people would know that he was the Son of Man, the Messiah. Now, healing a blind man is a good symbol, because the man was, in fact, healing a blind man who was born blind is even a better symbol, because he was born blind the way we are born spiritually blind. We are all conceived in sin, as the psalmist put it. We're born inheriting Adam's original sin the sin which had its origin in Adam, we inherit that. And so when Jesus healed a man, man born, born blind, physically blind, it is a good object lesson to teach us that he can also heal sinners who are born blind in their sin. This man was begging by the side of the road, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, quoting John 9, 8, which is a, little bit, a few verses from now. His neighbors and those who formerly had seen him as a beggar said, isn't this the man who sat begging? They saw him after he was healed and said, hmm, it's the same guy that who sat by the side of the road begging. Now, we need to point out here, back then, a blind man had to beg. There was no jobs for him. I, I had a, a friend of mine who was in going to church with me years and years ago when he was blind. He got married. He had kids. There were all kind of support groups for him. The, the state of South Carolina opened up concession stands on interstate highways that were run by blind people. So he had support. They didn't have that back then. You had no choice. You had to beg. And what a pitiful existence. He never had seen anything. He never had a decent job. He didn't get married. He was just a piece of trash. And so this is this is quite exciting. I knew, I knew he was quite excited when he got healed. Now, the disciples ask a theological question when they see this blind man. Hmm, why is this man blind? 
Who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, we have to unpack some history to explain this question, which might seem sort of strange. The rabbis had developed several erroneous principles. For example, they believed that there's no death without sin. In other words, if somebody died, they had to do something to cause it. If a tower fell on your head, by golly, you must have been fornicating with your neighbor's wife or something, or something. You must have, you must have embezzled funds from the company. You did something to get killed. This, of course, completely ignores the teaching of the book of Job, where Job was perfectly righteous, and yet bad things happened to him anyway. The Pharisees believed that there was no suffering unless somebody had caused sin to initiate that suffering. And again, that violates the whole lesson of the book of Job. You want, that was in the Old Testament canon, and you wonder why in the world they never read the book of Job. Some of the Pharisees thought the child could sin in its womb. As John Gill points out, this is not the doctrine of original sin. The Jews believed it, but that's not biblical. Of course, we believe a child is a sinner by nature in the womb, but that doesn't mean that he is a sinner and his actions in the womb is a big difference. Jesus, of course, would not deny that the baby was a sinner in the womb, but he would deny that the baby had committed a sin and that this blind man had done something in his womb in order to cause him to be blind. Oh, he must have grabbed, he punched his mama too hard, he sinned. Ah, therefore, he got what he deserved, he was born blind. No, that's not true, Jesus is saying. Some people even thought that a soul could sin in a pre-existent state, or at least it is thought that some of the Pharisees believe that. Jameson Foster and Brown denies that the Jews believed in transmigration of the souls, reincarnation, but Adam Clark says they did believe in it. I don't know whether they did or not. The NIV Study Bible and John Gill and Adam Clark, all three say that the Pharisees thought a soul could sin in a pre-existent state, whether that means a pre-existent disembodied state or a pre-existent state, a pre-existent, re, a pre-existent incarnate state. Either way, it's nonsense. That's not why the man was born blind. Some of the Pharisees held that terrible punishments occurred because of the sins of parents. The NIV Study Bible and John Gill point that out. So you see, you get all this together and you basically see that what the Pharisees were doing and the disciples were picking up on that idea is that there had to be some reason for this blindness. It just didn't happen because we live in a foreign world, a fallen world. They, they had no idea about the teaching of the book of Job. And Jesus puts the, the hiatus on that idea and he says, hey, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But there's a purpose in his blindness. He was born blind in this abject state so that God's work might be displayed in him. Now, the application point here is you might be degraded. You might be down. You might be kicked in the head. But God, if he so desires, can do a mighty work in you. So be open to that. We go to verses 4 and 5. We, Jesus says, we, meaning he and his disciples, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And what he's saying is the light of the world is going to be crucified here shortly, and it's going to get dark, and they're going to start persecuting you, and it's going to be a lot harder to, to do miracles than to do all the works that God wants us to do. So we need to keep working, keep working, keep working. Of course, this light of the world, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he also said it in the last chapter, in verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Jesus is urging his apostles on to work hard, but and even though he's leaving and he said it's nighttime, but he did send his Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, so I'm sure he's not trying to denigrate that, not trying to denigrate the Holy Spirit, obviously. But what he's saying is, that at least looking at a natural human point of view here, I'm going to be gone. 
So let's get working. Let's get busy. Now, what kind of works that did Jesus want him and his apostles to do? Notice you said we. That means Jesus and his apostles. We must do the works of him who sent me, the Father who sent Jesus. Jesus refers to the Father over and over again as him who sent me, him who sent me. What are some of the works? Here's some options. The work of redemption, John Gill says, by fulfilling the law and satisfying justice. We must continue that work of redemption by spreading the gospel, preaching the gospel. Or it could be the doing of miracles, as John Gill says. In my opinion, that's the best answer because it's closest to the context. He's about to heal a blind man. And so when he says we must do the works of him who sent me, that would include miracles. In fact, most primarily would include miracles. John Gill sort of agrees with that. He says, quote, doubtless he said this with some view to the cure he was about to perform. Jameson Fawcett Brown says the works that the disciples and Jesus had to do, the works of the Father that they had to do, was doing good in general, though not exclusively by miracles. Well, I don't think we need to quibble over this. It's all included in one nice, big, happy package. Preaching the gospel and doing miracles. Oh, and by the way, people will say we as Jesus and the apostles must do the works of him, but not us. Disciples who live 2,000 years later, oh no, we cannot do a healing. Oh, that would be terrible. We might be faking people out. We might be a marjo, a, a fraud. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said we, and I believe it's very easy to make the further application that not only is he referring to his immediate apostles, but he's referring to those who came after him, including the Apostle Paul, who was not in that group of original apostles, by the way. We're not going to take the ability of him to do miracles away, are we? There are lots and lots of people that do miracles today. You've never heard of them, but they're all over, mostly in the third world in India and China in places where the deist and the rationalist in the church aren't in control. And they're doing miracles, and they're getting people saved by the bucket load. We go to verse 6 and verse 7. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. His eyes meaning the eyes of the blind man, the, the blind beggar. Go, he, Jesus, told him, the blind beggar, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Now, let's take care of some details before we tackle the most interesting question is, why did he use the mud and the spit to heal the man? First of all, Siloam, the pool of Siloam, that was a rock-cut pool on the southern side of the main ridge on which Jerusalem was built, as the NIV Study Bible describes it. I've got a map here. If you'll look at the southeast corner of Israel, I know you can't see it, but look at any map, you'll see the Pool of Siloam right there at the southeastern corner within the walls of Jerusalem at that time. There's a water gate there, and you will see that the pool is fed by Hezekiah's tunnel, which runs under the rocks outside the walls on that slope there, Ophel, uh, the slope that runs down to the Kidron Valley, and that running north, and then this underground tunnel has its origin in the spring of Gihon, the Gihon Spring. Very famous. Hezekiah's Tunnel, they still take people on tourist trips. So this, I was in Israel and didn't get to go. Doggone it, I wish I had of, but they didn't take us there. But anyway, uh, this is the Pool of Siloam at the southeast corner. We need to distinguish that, by the way, from the Pool of Bethesda, which is at the sort of the northeastern side of Jerusalem, right north of the temple complex, right next to the Sheep Gate. And there was a man who had been laying there for 38 years, couldn't get in the pool, if you remember. That's the Pool of Bethesda. That's not the Pool of Siloam. I used to get those mixed up all the time. So let's distinguish that in our mind. The, the name of the pool means sent. The options on why it was named that. It could have been that the pool was a gift sent from God. That's Adam Clark's suggestion. 
he mentions that water was sent by pipes and canals was another option that he mentions is that the waters were sent by pipes and canals into different quarters of the city. So that's why they call it sent, Siloam. Now, there's, that's why the pool might have been named that. There's a, here's some options on why Jesus sent the man to the pool. Jesus was a gift sent from God to refresh the people, so he sent the man to the pool named sent, trying to make a parallel from Jesus as a gift and sent from God and the water as a gift sent from God. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown like this solution. They say the, the water is symbolic of streams that make glad the city of God, quoting Isaiah 8:6, because these people, referring to northern Israel, rejected the slowly, warring, slowly flowing waters of Shiloh, that's Siloam, and rejoiced with reason and the son of Ramali. In other words, they split off with their southern Judah neighbors, and they allied with reason, the king of Syria, and the son of Ramali, who was Pekah, in northern Israel, and they rejected the Pool of Siloam, the flowing waters of the Pool of Siloam. So, obviously, the pool was associated with good things in Israel's history. Some people think this allusion to Genesis 49.10 is another reason why Jesus sent the man to the Pool of Siloam. This is a little bit sketchy, but let's go through it anyway. This is from Adam Clark. Genesis 49.10, this is when Jacob is giving his blessing and his inheritance to his sons in chapter 49 of Genesis, and he says this to Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, in verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. But that's the text. In the margin, in a marginal note of the Holman Christian Study Bible, it says the scepter will not pass, will not depart from between his feet until shallow comes, which doesn't really make sense, but another possible marginal translation is this, until the scepter will not depart from his feast, uh, from his, between his feet, until he comes to Shiloh. Well, Jesus has now basically come to Shiloh by being there in Jerusalem. So maybe Jesus is trying to get people to think about that prophecy in Genesis 49.10. Adam Clark doubts this is true. He doubts whether the beggar would know this. I doubt it too, but I just thought I'd mention it to you just to see what people are thinking. All right, now we've talked about the Pool of Siloam. Let's get back to the main point of this, uh, verses 6 and 7. Why did Jesus use mud and saliva to heal the man? Well, now, first of all, let's point out, as the NIV Study Bible points out, that mud, excuse me, that Jesus often healed people using different methods. In fact, says the NIV Study Bible, he never healed the same way twice. He always used a different way of doing it. Doing it. And the application from that is, is we should never look for a magic technique or a formula, as gotquestions.org points out. Don't do that. And believe me, when I was in the early charismatic movement, I was constantly looking for a formula because I said, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we'd get people healed? I'll tell you what the formula is. The formula is you better look to Jesus, and you better hear him when he says either to pray for this one or not pray for this one. All right, so that's uh, that's the preliminary point here. Uh, another preliminary point is the Jews used spit for the disorder of the eyes. Mud, now, they didn't use. That would be very unusual, but spit was used all the time. In fact, there are several Roman writers and rabbis who point that out. Spit was supposed to have healing prophecies for properties for blind people. Now, let's look at some options as to why Jesus used spit. Well, he could have been trying to show his intention, intentions to heal, which would increase people's faith. They see him spitting on the ground, and people say, Ah, he's getting ready to heal a blind man. In other words, Jesus was doing it sort of for dramatic effect. Now, gotquestions.org says it would, it would increase the 
the faith of the blind man, but the blind man couldn't see what Jesus was doing. But maybe somebody could have told him, hey, he's spitting in the mud down there. Maybe he's getting ready to try to heal you. I don't know. Maybe so. But I think the general idea is true that the spit is associated with healing, and he was trying to accommodate himself to the culture of the Jews back then to say, hey, you want to see some real healing? You think spit can heal an eye? Let me show you how it's really done. Now, here's some options as to why Jesus used mud. Adam Clark speculates that this was to make sure the people knew that Jesus wasn't using a common charm or a spell. He wasn't using hocus-pocus on them because nobody ever used mud to heal anybody. It was sui generis. It was out of the blue. GotQuestions.org speculates that Jesus used mud in order to imitate the original creation of man by using the quote-unquote dust of the ground as Adam was created in the dust of the ground, a creative miracle done there, healing somebody born blind from birth. That's a creative miracle, folks. That's not speeding up a held-up natural healing process. A lot of healings are done that way. In fact, medicine works that way a lot of times, medical science. But medical science ain't going to heal somebody born blind. And and your typical, it's just not done. That's why it was considered such a big miracle, a messianic miracle. Adam Clark gives a third option. It is difficult to find the reason that Jesus used the mud. He just throws his hands up and says, I really don't know for sure. In fact, nobody knows for sure. Those are two interesting speculations, though, I think. We move now to John 9, chapter uh, verses 8 through 12. His neighbors and those who formerly had seen him as a beggar said, Isn't this the man who sat begging? Some said, He's the one. No, others were saying, But he looks like him. He kept saying, I am the one. Verse 10, Therefore they asked him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, Go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he, they asked. I don't know, he said. So this is your typical question that you would have asked had you been there. Is this the same guy? He he looks like the same guy, but my gosh, we've seen him for years. He's been begging by the side of the road. Now he's standing up straight with his eyes open looking at us. How can this be the same guy? But he sure looks like him. So, So then... Uh, they listen to what the man said, and as he tries to overcome their incredulity, he says, look, I am the one. I'm the one that was healed. And then they say, well, if you were the one that was healed, excuse me, if you were the one that was, he said, I am the one, meaning I am the one that was by the side of the road begging all, all for years. And then they asked them, well, then if you were the one begging, how in the world can you see now? And then he says, Jesus healed me. Oh, really? Somebody made you see when you've been blind for all these years? Now they're starting to get excited. Where is he, they asked. And, of course, Jesus had already left. Jesus didn't hang around because, of course, he knew it was going to be a problem. He healed the man on the Sabbath, which I haven't mentioned yet. And he knew the Pharisees were going to get their panties in a wad. And so he, he got out of there. So the man didn't know where Jesus was at the time. Why did Jesus withdraw himself? Well, a couple of reasons. First is he knew the Jews would be irritated by the miracle, as John Gill and Adam Clark say especially because it was done on the Sabbath. The Jews loved to persecute Jesus for doing miracles on the Sabbath, and Jesus loved doing miracles on the Sabbath so that the Jews would get upset. He was constantly trying to say, look, you people have built up these hedge laws. You've built up all these extra traditions and rules about the Sabbath. You've completely lost the true meaning of the Sabbath. And besides, I am the Sabbath. I am the rest that the Sabbath was pointing to. So he went out of his way to aggravate the Pharisees. John 5:16 Therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. John 9:16 which is in the next couple of verses. Therefore some of the Pharisees said this man is not from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Heal somebody, made him see, but he did it on a Sabbath, so he can't be from God. 
Others were saying, I assume that's other Pharisees, could be other people, said, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. That's one thing about doing a big miracle like that in the midst of a lot of opposition. It makes it hard on the skeptics. It makes it hard on the enemies of Jesus. And that's why I've got a gripe against two people. One is cessationists who don't even try and two to do miracles. And two is those who do miracles that are not verifiable. Jesus never did a miracle that was not verifiable. They're easy to prove. There were witnesses everywhere who had seen this man for a long, long time. And the Pharisees tried over and over and over again to debunk the man's testimony. And this poor beggar flummoxed them because he had so much evidence on his side. And he had so many witnesses. Charismatics, unfortunately, will do miracles today. And they'll make it where it's impossible to verify. I could give you some sad examples, but I won't. Let's look at the issue of why the people were not sure it was the same guy, the same beggar that they had seen for years. Well, think about it. He's been begging, hunched over, pitiful by the side of the road. Now he's walking around saying, ah, hey, I can see, I can see. He's standing up erect, and his eyes are open. Well, that, that I could understand why you might think, well, that's, this can't be him, because that's a big miracle we're talking about. Hard to believe. Adam Clark says the man's appearance must have changed a good bit, a good bit since having been cured. John 9:13 through 15. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees, assumed that they is the crowd. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. So again the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. He told them I washed and I can see. Now he was brought to the Pharisees. We're going to assume this is on the Sanhedrin. John Gill and Adam Clark say that the Sanhedrin was mostly made up of Pharisees. And I, when I saw that, I said, no, that's not so, is it? Well, I went and did some checking, brief checking on the Internet, and I found some guy who wrote a history of the Sanhedrin, a guy named Bill Petro. I don't know him, but he said the Sadducees had the majority. That's what I've always been under the impression. The Sadducees had the majority in the Sanhedrin. So this might not have been the Sanhedrin. It just might have been a group of the Pharisees that Jesus brought the, that, that the people brought the blind man to. And again, we should never cease to point out the hypocrisy and the, the arrogance of the Pharisees. Oh, it's okay to heal. Uh, the rabbis, you know, said it's okay to heal eye disorders, but not on Saturday. What difference does it make? The law against working on the Sabbath was you're not supposed to do gainful occupation. You're not supposed to be trying to make money on the Sabbath with your job, but not to do works of mercy and charity or works of necessity in case of extremity in case of catastrophe or case of difficulty no there's nothing wrong with doing that jesus said that over and over again during his ministry john 9:16. therefore some of the pharisees said this man is not from god for he doesn't keep the sabbath well that's that's the sign isn't it? you don't keep the, the traditions of the pharisees therefore you can't be from god blind as bats but others were saying how can a sinful man perform such signs and there was a division among them and that's what always happens when jesus his word is preached either he him personally preaching the word or his disciples some people you're going to have to shake the dust off your feet and walk away and some people are going to accept and walk into the kingdom violent people will take the kingdom by force and other people will try to kill you jesus was no middle of the road sort of person all right this idea of not healing on the sabbath here's an interesting quote from a rabbi by john gill quote it is forbidden to put fasting spittle even on the eyelid on a Sabbath day. In other words, you're fasting on a Sabbath, and so your spit is more holy than normal. But even then, you can't put it on your eye on Saturday. The rabbis really had it together, didn't they? Now, some of the others, I, say, I said it could be other Pharisees or it could just be other people, but assuming it was Pharisees, we do know that some Pharisees believed in Jesus. How about Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee. 
He helped prepare Jesus' body for burial, and Joseph of Arimathea provided the tomb that Jesus was buried in in the midst of opposition, so we can assume they were believers. John nine seventeen. Again, they asked the blind man, this is the Pharisees, asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And I think that maybe the Pharisees are trying to see, hmm, is this guy claiming to be the Messiah? Because after all, healing blind people, that's a messianic miracle. And you know the Pharisees didn't want Jesus to be the Messiah. So I guess they're testing the waters here, kind of putting their fingers up to see which way the wind's blowing, kind of taking a preliminary poll. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, the blind man answered. Now, when they said, since he opened your eyes, I'm sure that what the Pharisees meant is since he allegedly opened your eyes. We don't believe it for a minute that, you, that he did, but maybe they did believe it. Maybe there was so much evidence they could deny it. As I have said in the past that the Pharisees, I said they couldn't deny that Jesus did miracles. I didn't really say that they never denied, but they never successfully denied that Jesus did miracles. Let's put it that way. So I suspect that they are not going to go. I know they're not going to go down the path of trying to knock down Jesus' Miracle, Jesus' miracle working power, they knew he did the miracle. But they could stand fast on the fact that he did it on Saturday, on the Sabbath. Or at least they knew he did the miracle after they interviewed the blind man's parents, and then they became convinced. They might not have known right now at this point that Jesus had done the miracle. Now, the the NIV Study Bible has a speculation on the Pharisees' attitude. They, they say this... Study Bible says that they think that the Pharisees were perplexed. They really didn't know what to think about Jesus. All right, so the man, when asked who was it, he didn't say Jesus was the Messiah. He maybe didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah yet, but he said he was a prophet. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that this is probably the highest designation at the time the man could think of. But John Gill mentions that his belief apparently increased as time went on. And so he went from believing that he was a prophet all the way to the Son of God. In fact, the NIV Study Bible quotes five verses in this chapter, John chapter 9, showing that the blind man's estimation of Jesus progressed through stages and went higher and higher and higher. First of all, the man believed that Jesus was a man, John 9:11. He answered, the blind man, the beggar answered, The man called Jesus made mud spread it on my eyes. The man, he said he was a man. And then in 9.17, he called him a prophet, this verse I just read. He's a prophet, he said to the Pharisees. And then in John 9.27, he said he was a prophet who should be followed by disciples. John 9.27 says this, I already told you, he said. They kept badgering him about who he was, and the man was getting irritated. He said, I already told you, you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Now, when he says his disciples too, that could imply that the blind man had become a disciple, or it could mean that other people had followed him. But the point is, is that he just assumed that Jesus was the type of guy who would have disciples behind him. We go down to John 9:33. This is stage four. The man, the man born blind, believed that Jesus was someone from God. He said in 9:33, "If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything." So now he's talking about sort of divine origins, and then. In John 9:38, the man born blind said that Jesus was one who should be worshipped. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him in verse 38. I believe, Lord, and he worshipped him. So he came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and his belief kind of went through stages. Now, this was probably a smart idea not to say that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, he might have just inadvertently said he's a prophet without knowing he was the Messiah, but maybe he did know he was the Messiah, did believe he was the Messiah, but he was scared to say so in front of the Pharisees because they would have killed him. They would have taken him before the Sanhedrin and got him killed. At least get, 
he would get put out of the synagogue, which, as a matter of fact, is what happened. But it would be a little bit dangerous to say he was the Messiah at this stage. So we don't know whether the man born blind actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah or he just believed he was a prophet. I suspect the latter. I believe he just thought he was a prophet. And as time went on, he started contemplating, man, I can see that man. He's, he's more than a prophet. He's the son of God. John 9, 18, verse 18 through 21. All right, I just finished giving a big discourse about whether the Jews believed or did believe in that miracle. I should have looked ahead to verse 18 or remembered it. Verse 18 says the Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. So, yeah, the Jews finally did believe, which backs up my main point is the Pharisees never complained about Jesus actually doing the miracle, they couldn't argue against that. And here they went and got the evidence, and they realized the evidence was overwhelming. One more indication that Jesus did those miracles. He was not making them up. So he summons the the Pharisees summoned the parents of the one who had received the sight. Verse 19, they asked, they the Pharisees asked them, the parents, Is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Notice they say this is the one you say was born blind. Was he really born blind? That's what they're hinting at. How then does he now see? Verse 20. Now, you know these parents were probably freaked out by having this official delegation come to them. They were just the parents of a blind. They were just simple people. Their son was a blind beggar. And all of a sudden, these big shot Pharisees come up. How do you you know he was born blind? Verse 20. We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parent answered. (laughs) They, They answered according to the facts that they knew. Verse 21. But we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. In other words, we can't tell you how he sees. But we know he was born blind, and they implied that the eyes were open. He says, we don't know who opened his eyes, because nobody could deny it. The Pharisees couldn't deny it. The parents could deny it. Nobody denied it. We don't, we don't know who did that, they said. Ask him. So they kind of, he's of age. That means he's, he's of the legal age where he could testify. Jewish traditional law said you had to be 13 before you could testify. Somebody, what, what she said, hey, he's over 13 years old. Ask him. You don't need me. I think they're trying to uh, get away from the Pharisees and try to get out of this controversy. I think the Pharisees were probably trying to see, well, maybe Jesus got in cahoots with the man and said, how about you pretend to be blind? I'll pretend to heal you and we'll cause a big uproar. I think, you know, the Pharisees were trying to check out whether this was a fake miracle. And by the way, you can't blame them for doing that. I mean, sure, you've got to check out this miracle to see whether it's fake or not. But once you get overwhelming evidence and then you do believe and you know it's not fake and then you still come after the man who did the miracle because he did it on the Sabbath, thus showing absolutely no compassion for that beggar who had been blind all of his life. You talk about hard-hearted SOBs. You can't beat the Pharisees for jerks. They were the most despicable group of human beings. I think they were right, right, right up there with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Or Paul Pot and his commie buddies. Or Mao Zedong and his communist friends. I'm actually exaggerating a little bit. There's probably nothing worse than that. But these people were pretty bad. Pretty nasty. Pretty unfeeling. Pretty uncaring. Now, I'm going to have to stop here because I don't have enough time to finish the whole chapter. The, the story takes up the whole chapter. So this will be part A. We'll do part B on the healing of the man born blind in the next audio. I hope you will listen to that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 